If you will, take your Bibles and turn with us to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We are now in week 4 in our series of walking through this epistle, this letter to the Hebrews. And we are looking at... Um, how Jesus is greater than all other things. Jesus is, is what we need above all else. He is above all else. So therefore, we pursue Him above all else. And as we walk through this one chapter, we're going to walk through the whole chapter today, uh, the author points out that Israel had a good life promised to them by God, but were kept out. They were kept out of that promise, specifically that promised land for a period of time because they did not trust God to be enough for them. We find that same idea, that same characteristic uh, over and over again throughout the Bible. And we find it in our own lives, don't we? That we don't believe that God is enough for us. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They didn't think God was enough. Satan comes to him and says, God's basically withholding from you. He's not enough. You need something else. And that's our problem. And this is uh, a big part of this is when we find Christ, we will find peace in him. Jesus is greater than everything else that we're going to find on this earth. We find peace in Christ. And a similar challenge as we look at this today, a similar challenge is what brings us to this letter and specifically this chapter to the Jewish Christians in this context. Their devotion to Christ was waning due to societal and cultural pressure. And instead of experiencing God, uh, experiencing God's best for their lives, let me say that the correct way, they were slipping back to and desiring again the law and the ceremonies of the past. And so the author is trying to encourage them, don't slip back into that rote, uh, that rut, if you will. I've always heard that a rut is nothing but an ongoing grave. I've heard that said before, it's just a continuous grave is what a rut is. We need to get out of the rut. We need to get out of that. We don't need to go back to it, uh, that rut of their Jewish heritage. Believers of our day, we're also tempted and, to, and uh, to come short of God's best for our lives, basically a promised land rest that God has sworn for us. A promised land rest that God has sworn for us. So the theme for today as we walk through this, the three primary points we're going to be looking at is God's full rest. God's full rest is offered in, through, and by Jesus. So we must consider his superiority. We've got to watch out for this creeping unbelief. That tends to come into our life. We've got to watch out for this creeping unbelief. And we need to fully partake of Christ. Fully partake of Him. So as we walk through this, because this is uh, 18 verses, I'm just going to read the verses as we come to them. So we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 initially. Verses 1 through 6. So let us consider Jesus' superiority. Considering Jesus' superiority. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The scripture reads like this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, capital O, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would spread afterward. 
But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So first, let us consider Jesus' superiority. That's the first point that we're going to look at today. And within this, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot in this, but we're going to hit this kind of uh, not we're not going to dive super deep, but we're going to dive uh, about midway, about waist deep. I guess if you were in a pool, you'd be on the slope going from the shallow end to the deep end. We're on the slope. OK, so y'all hang in there with us. So we're going to look at the first part. And this the author of Hebrews writes, therefore, holy brethren, partakers or you who share of the heavenly calling. So this conversation is first to those who have been redeemed. Those who have called upon Christ. Brethren, sisters. When he says brethren, he's talking about the church. And uh, so he says, uh, for us to remember who we are. Remember who we are according to the Hebrews. Remember who we are. And when we look back, we can look back over into chapter 2. Who are we? Look there in verse 7 of chapter 2. Who are we that man is mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of? In verse 7 says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and you have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So who are we? We are people that are supposed to be crowned with dominion over creation. But we lost it due to sin. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who God created us to be, to be people with dominion over all things. We could go back into Genesis and see where God gave us that dominion. We are supposed to be those people. And Christ came as one of us. It says that there in the scripture. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that yet because I'll move on down that text in just a moment. But Christ came as one of us, lived and died for us to become the founder or captain of our salvation. If you look back over there in chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that about Christ. It tells us in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ came to be a part of the brethren, not apart from the brethren. We have a high priest who is familiar with all of our trials and temptations, yet without sin. That is Christ. So, we need to consider him. We need to consider the fact that we are all part of this family. We're all part of the family of God. And this is our heavenly calling. Now, when, when you read that language, so many times, the only people we usually say calling about are pastors. But I want to tell you this, that every single believer that's been changed by the grace of God has been called by God. We are all called to follow after Christ. We've all been given a heavenly calling. I know we've so much associated this only with those in leadership positions for all these years. But guys, that's not accurate. Every single person called by the grace of God, spoken to, has been called to a calling. That's the reason why we are a church built up with holy stones. We are like holy stones placed upon one another building. Listen, it, you're not going to build unholy, holy, unholy, holy. That's like putting a cracked brick with a solid brick and a cracked brick with a solid brick. We're, we're holy, set apart. All of us are. And we've got to use that calling God has given us to serve Him through the church. We are a holy Brethren, holy brothers with a heavenly 
calling. That is who we are. We each have our place. And by the way, for a little plug right here, our nominating committee very soon is going to start kicking up because we've got to start looking toward the fall nominating committee. Those of you that are in that position, if you don't know who you are, I've got the policy guideline manual at the house. I'm reading over it, and I'll tell you who you are in the coming weeks. Okay? So, we've got to get ready because we've all got a calling. We've got a place to serve in the church, in the local church. That's who we are. Okay? So then, first, we've got to consider we're all part, we're all part of this holy family. Each and every one of us that's been called by the grace of God. We are. But we also got to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, how it reads there in the New King James. So we got to consider Jesus. To enter into this fullest life that God wants us to have, the first thing we must do is consider Jesus' superiority. We got to consider his superiority. Well, then he goes into talking about Moses. Now, why would... Why would the author start diving onto Moses? Because Moses was who? He was, man, he was like the cream of the crop in Jewish history, right? I mean, that's who Moses was. Man, everybody thought so high. Moses is great. Moses has been our redeemer. Moses has been our savior. Moses led the ex. Moses did all this. Moses did all these different things. Well, Jesus is greater than him. Jesus is greater than him. So, so the, the, the apostle begins looking at this. Who is Moses? Well, we can find out a little bit about Moses. I, I made myself a little cheat sheet here of information on Moses real quick. Moses, well, he was born at a time when the ruler of the land, Pharaoh, was trying to kill him. Moses was given a symbolic name. That name means I drew him out of the water. That's what his name means. Moses, uh, he fled Egypt after killing an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. So he must first go back to Egypt where he is initially rejected by the people to whom he is sent then leads the Hebrews out of Egypt to freedom. This is comparative. It's written in a comparative form. On the right-hand side of my sheet is the life of Jesus and how they line up against one another. But he institutes the Passover, Moses does, doesn't he? God gives him the instructions on how to do the Passover, and he institutes the Passover. He's able to lead the people to freedom through parting the Red Sea. He does that. He ascends Mount Sinai, and he spends 40 days there to receive the law from Yahweh God. He ratifies the covenant with Yahweh by sprinkling the blood of the covenant, a sacrificed animal, on the people. He and the Israelites uh, wander in the wilderness for 40 years, tested by God, including being tested by hunger. Moses feeds the multitudes in the wilderness by miraculously calling down manna from heaven. Now granted, we know Moses really didn't feed them. We know God fed them, but it was through the service and the commitment and the surrender of Moses to God's will. We see all these things in the life of Moses. So many of the Israelites, the Jews, held Moses in this, in this pinnacle position. Man, he is our guy. He is, he is the top dog. But Jesus comes along in the scripture, and, this, and this, this author here of Hebrews tells us, as great as Moses is, he's still not as great as Jesus. He's still not as great as Jesus. And how does he explain this? We look here in, that ver in the verses there, verse 3. Excuse me, in the latter part of verse 2, it says, He who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. So let's bring the people up to speed. We know Moses was faithful. You remember Moses? Moses was a great guy. He did a good, good deed. He was very faithful. But look at this, verse 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now you think about that for a minute. You go buy a house. Many of you, I don't know your path to New Prospect Baptist Church. But my path brings me down uh, Old Road down here by the cemetery. I go out New Prospect Road. And then I turn left. Uh, uh, on New Prospect Road, there used to be a house there on the left. They tore it down. Now they built two houses. Anybody go by those houses? You probably know what I'm talking about. It's the Hudson Homes, okay? All right. If you've ever gone by there, they built two really beautiful homes. Those homes are really pretty. But you know what? Somebody had to design those homes. So whoever designed those homes is pretty amazing for that to all come together as it has. So inasmuch as those houses are amazing, the people who designed it had to have the creative mind and the mindset to know how to lay this window out, that door out, this porch out, this, this garage doors, all these different things. They had to have the mind to do that. This is talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about how he's greater than Moses. Moses might have been the one that was the contractor, if you will, but Jesus was the designer. He is the architect. And so we, we, we are grateful for Jesus. He's greater than Moses. In much as Moses absolutely was vital and did a fantastic job, I want to tell you something. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. For every house, verse 4, is built by someone. But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. You know, they're not trying to throw any shade on Moses. Moses did a great job, but yet. But Christ, verse 6, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we look at this and we see Jesus. We see Jesus. He is our apostle and high priest of our confession. That's who Jesus Christ is. So what is an apostle? Or what characterizes an apostle? Today we really don't have apostles. Some people use that language for church planters from time to time. I don't know if I fully agree with that because our normal understanding of an apostle is one who walked with Christ while he was on the earth. That's an apostle. And then we have disciples. We have disciples and apostles. We become disciples as after we have become converted and given our lives over after we've been regenerated by the grace of God in our lives. And then we walk and we become better disciples. But biblically, we'll never become apostles because apostles walk physically on the earth with Jesus. But we have this apostle. That means there is authority and ambassadorship. Authority and ambassadorship. And this authority, he came with all of God's power, grace, love, mercy, and justice when Jesus came. He came with all those characteristics and was able to exercise those things on earth. And then we think about his ambassadorship. Everything that was of heaven came with Jesus when he came to earth. Everything that was of heaven came with him to earth. We think about ambassadors in our own nation. And we send ambassadors to various countries all over the world. And what are they supposed to do? They are supposed to be the exact representation of the United States in another country. When people see them, they're supposed to see the United States. Well, that's difficult in today's climate, ain't it? Because we're a, we're a hodgepodge, variety, melting pot of folks. So, man, those guys, those ambassadors to other countries, boy, they got a big job on their hands, don't they? And they're supposed to carry with them all the things that we hold as rules and regulations and laws with them. And they live by those things there in that other land while they're stationed as an ambassador in that other country. 
And that's Jesus. Jesus lived by everything. He said, I do nothing unless the Father says so. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. This is the exact representation. He is the exact representation of God on earth. That's Jesus. Jesus came as the ultimate messenger with the ultimate message. And Jesus is the high priest of our confession. He is the he is the priest and the sacrifice. He is the priest and the sacrifice. The only one holy enough to enter in in the way that he did. The only one holy enough to die in the way that he did. Everything else had blemishes. But he was like a lamb without he is, was the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb of God to be slain in our place for our sins. Last week we talked about how he is our propitiation. He stood in the place to divert the divine wrath of God, to take that away from us. That's who he is. Verses 2 and 3. I've already read those passages of verses, those uh, those passages of Scripture, excuse me. So again, how do we consider Jesus' authority when looking at verses 2 and 3? He is the builder of a house and is the builder of the all things. He built the house of Moses. Moses could not have done anything he did apart from Jesus because everything is made in and through him. We looked at that in last week's sermon. I'm not going to go back for time reasons. But he built all of creation. Go back to Genesis 1. We see that. Colossians 1. We see that. We see how everything is in and through Christ, for Christ, by Christ, for His glory. Verses 5 and 6. We see, And Moses indeed was faithful in all of God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. You see, Moses lived a life that was worthy of being spoken of afterward. How are you and I living our lives? Are our lives being worthy? Are we living in a worthily manner that someone could speak positively of us once we're gone? We're to be that same way. And although we are not the designer of the house, we are a part of the house. And then the house gets its reputation from you and me. This house gets its reputation from you and me. How did the Jewish people get the reputation? It's because of Moses. Because how Moses lived, how Moses led. How does this house get its, get its reputation? It's how I lead and how, I, how I'm being led. It's about you and how you lead and how you live outside these walls. That's how this church gets its reputation. People say, that church has this reputation or that reputation. Prayerfully, hopefully, by God's grace, I hope it is a loving, grace-filled, disciple-making reputation of New Prospect Baptist Church. I hope it's not one that comes out and people say, that's a judgmental church. Now, don't get me wrong. Inside the church, the Scripture tells us that we need to judge one another if we have called on Christ as Lord and Savior. Because people who misread Scripture all the time say, you're not supposed to judge me. Well, obviously you're lost, okay? Because God's law is going to judge you. But the Scripture says that we are to hold one another accountable. When you're baptized, that means I allow and give every person in here that is a witness the ability to hold me accountable to the faith that I claim to have. Because nobody knows your heart except for you and God. Nobody knows your heart except for you and God. I can talk you through Scripture. I can walk you through it. I hopefully, prayerfully will see fruit from that. But the only person who truly knows your salvation is you and the Lord Jesus. That's the reason why we do need to have a strong testimony. 
Because then people may say, they're different. What is it? It's because I've got fruit of the Spirit. I have the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit lives in me because I've been saved. Because when you're saved, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. So therefore, what should be coming from you? Not you, the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should be coming from you. Anyway, got a little bit off base there for a minute. Minute there? I apologize. Not really. A son over his own house, okay? So whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope to the end? Again, how do we consider Jesus' authority? He is, Jesus is more than a servant. He's more than a servant. He's a faithful son. He's the son who came to save. Jesus is faithful in God's true house. Jesus, like he said, he came to become a part of the brethren. He became a part of the house. He wasn't just ruling over it or the architect of it. He became a part of the house. But he was greater than Moses. He was greater than Moses. And he was greater than Moses so we can have a greater testimony. We know stuff about Moses. Moses didn't do everything right. I mean, even though Moses uh, did uh, many things right, he's held in high esteem. He still killed a man. I mean, where does that fit into all of that, you know? And then he tried to cover it up instead of just being honest about it. You know, I mean, there's, you know, Moses wasn't perfect. But we still hold him in high regard. He still did everything that God told him to do. But Jesus did everything God told him to do. Everything. He was a faithful son. Jesus was perfect and faithful. And his faithfulness was a model to, to, to them in, in his time, in Jesus' time, when he walked the earth. It's a model to us now. So we've got, to, we've got to keep going. We see his testimony. We see his life to be a model after. So we, we follow after him. And his faithfulness, we follow after that, we, after his faithfulness. And we keep going. We keep going. We keep following after Jesus. And Jesus, he, he kept going when temptation came. Jesus kept going when society rebuked him. Jesus kept going when people failed him. Jesus kept going when the cross came to him. Jesus stayed faithful to his father. To his father. Excuse me. Jesus stayed faithful to his father. And Jesus, in the English Standard Version, it's phrased this way in John 8, 29. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, pleasing to my father. And then we are the true house. We are the true house. Moses was faithful in a representative house, but we are the true house. Moses was faithful in that representative house. And we see that uh, one day we'll get there to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5. But it tells us this. They served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, this is, this is a, a representative house that Moses was building. But yet we are the house that he dwells in. We are the house. 1 Peter 2.5 in the New Living Translation says it this way. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We are that house. We are the true house of God. It's who we are. 
Indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, we've got to continue in what we know to be true. We've got to consider Jesus' superiority. He is greater than Moses. He is the designer of the house, not just the keeper of it. If not, we're going to have to watch out for creeping unbelief. It'll, it'll slip in there before you know it. So we've got to be people who are, are vigilant, if you will, in our faith. We've got to keep after it. We've got to be pursuing this life of faithfulness every single day, every single week of our lives. Look there in verses 7 through 13. We'll start in verses 7 through 11. The scripture says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this is a quote from Psalm 95, 1 through 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they, have not my, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is from Psalm 95, 1 through 7. Therefore, an example, this is an example of those who did not hold fast the confidence. The Israelite generation God delivered out of Egypt. They didn't hold fast. They kept going back and forth. We see what they did, they, how they crept into unbelief. Little bit by little bit, they crept into unbelief. And you know, that happens to us today. We just let it creep into our lives. And then eventually it'll become, it'll start hardening our hearts because we begin rebelling against God. We rebel against a time of studying the Word of God for ourselves. We'd much rather Google a passage of Scripture than look it up in a real Bible. And then we get all kind of nonsense all around it. Guys, be careful about that. Don't, don't let the internet dictate your Bible study. Pick up a physical Bible and read from the Bible yourself. Now, I'm not telling you there isn't beneficial things if you've got the, like a Bible app of some nature. But I'm just telling you right now, you need to have a Bible that is your own. A Bible that is your own. I talk about this quite often. When you come to church, listen. I know you can look at that screen, and I know April likes to chase those scriptures, okay? But I want to hear pages turning. I want to hear people looking at these verses. Is that really what that says? You know, not that you need to doubt your pastor. <laughs> but you need to make sure that what you're being taught is legit. That it's in there. You need to have your Bibles open, following along. I mean, let me, you want to retain what the Lord's teaching? I mean, we're walking through a book of the Bible. I'm telling you, I've got about... I don't know, some of you may follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I got, I got a stack of books about this tall on my desk that every time I get to that chapter or that passage of Scripture that I'm going to be preaching on that week, I read it. I'll highlight through there, and I'll stick tabs in that thing, and I'll come back to it. And I'll, Some of them books, I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I'll sit it to the side. Now, I'll read another one, and, and you know, I'll grab pieces. But guys, we, we've got to be in the Word of God. Because if, if you let this slip out of your sight, your faith is going to slip out of your heart. Now, I'm not telling you you can lose your salvation, but you definitely can lose your favor with the Lord. You can lose blessings with the Lord that you should be getting, but yet you're choosing to worship everything else and prioritize and idolize 
Because basically that's what it is. We change the word idolize to prioritize. But so many times we idolize things over taking time with the Lord. We've got to make sure that we're spending time with the Lord or else this unbelief will creep in. It'll harden our hearts. People get angry. Lord, why are you doing this to me? They start questioning the Lord. Why is that? Because you ain't been studying your Bible. You ain't been praying. You ain't been spending time. Now listen, that doesn't mean that everything that comes in your life that's a hardship is because you slipped away. Sometimes it's to build you up. And listen, that's a challenging line to see, isn't it? Right? I mean, sometimes you're just like, Lord, is this, is this of you or is this of the devil? I mean, I, I mean I'm going to sit here and tell you that line's pretty thin sometimes. You've, you've really got to be in that word of God and you've got to be praying to know which one it is. It's hard sometimes. Because many of you have gone through trials and you've wondered, is this, is this God, is this because I'm close to you or is this because I'm far from you? Hopefully the Lord will give you that answer. Hopefully the Lord will give you that answer because you're close to him. These, these, as we look at this, it talks about how they strayed for 40 years. They walked away, although they were, their fathers were tested, tried. They saw their works. They spent 40 years outside of God's rest. They spent 40 years outside of God's rest. Wandering, dying, held hostage by their own unbelief. And God says, they always go astray in their heart. If our heart's in the word of God, if we have written his word upon our heart, the scripture says, the, the psalmist wrote, I have written your word on my heart so that I might not sin against thee. We've got to write that word on our heart. Or else we're going to sin, we're going to slip, we're going to creep, and unbelief's going to come right into us. Look at verse 12. Brethren, beware, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So how can we guard against creeping unbelief? How can we guard against this? By taking care to avoid the unbelieving heart. We've got to take care to avoid that. The evil heart of unbelief, there in Numbers 13 and 14, was the unwillingness to believe God would take, care, take them into Canaan. They didn't believe that God would take them in there. In Hebrews 3, it is an unwillingness to believe that Jesus is enough. It is a heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. We've got to stay close to God. And this is not talking about, listen, this is not talking about losing your salvation. Because if you can lose your salvation, you never had it. You never had salvation in the first place. Because then you're saying you've got a weak God. A God that can't hold on to you. But the Bible tells us that once you're in the Father's hand, nothing can pluck you from the Father's hand. And if Jesus said that, if that's the truth, and you say, I believe you can lose your salvation, you might as well just toss the Bible because you just said the Bible ain't true. You can't lose your salvation. Either you got it or you don't. It's just the bottom line. You either have Christ as Lord of your life or you don't. You may have creeping unbelief. I mean, even the disciples said, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. We've got to ask God to help us. It is a heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. That's the kind of heart that leads to unbelief. unbelief is, and unbelief is not exclusively an intellectual thing. Sometimes it's just a trust thing. It's just a trust. I, you know, I've always heard that worrying is one of the worst sins. 
Because we're taking what God can't control and trying to put it into our own hearts and hands. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I mean, like, you need to pray. You need to, live by, you need to live by faith. You need to desire to live a holy life. And then let God control the rest. He is the sovereign God. We've got to trust Him that the things that are coming to us are to either build us up in our faith to make us stronger or to remove us from a situation that is not healthy for us. You know, the... When we think about this and we look about, we, we, it's a conversation here about the wilderness and about the hardening of the hearts in the day of the rebellion there in verse 8, the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works 40 years. I was angry with that generation, God said. They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So beware, brethren, lest, any be, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You know, this is like there, it's, for you and I sometimes, it's like we're, we're living at the edge of the woods with one foot in the wilderness and one foot in the plain. And we're, we're struggling to figure out where we are. But I want you to understand, look to Christ. Consider Jesus. If you think back over into verse 9 of chapter 2, but we see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? We got to look to Jesus. We got to consider Jesus. And we got to keep our mind focused on Jesus unless this creeping unbelief begins to come into our life. If you're saved, you are saved to the uttermost. You're saved by the grace of God. You're kept in the hand of God. You're saved. But you're, you're saved, but you may be overcome by career to the point that that career has replaced God. Like I said, it might not be priority, it might be idolatry. Saved, but always deconstructing your faith is that word now is such a big deal. You're saved, but constantly stressed without any Christian joy. Maybe that's where you are. You've got to turn and consider Jesus Christ and look to Him. Look to Him. Verse 13 tells us this. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how can we guard against creeping unbelief? We exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. What does that require? What does that require to exhort one another every day? Well, it, it requires honesty. We've got to be able to be honest with one another. It doesn't mean that you've got to stand up here and be honest on a public platform. But you need to have somebody, one-on-one, -on -one, something like that, honesty. You need that honesty. We must communicate with our brothers and sisters in Christ and approach one another with total humility. But we must also use tactful yet frank honesty. Galatians 6.1 in the New International Version says it this way. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You've got to be cautious, but honest when we speak and exhort someone else. Frequency is required. It needs to be frequent. It says, by exhorting one another every day. He said, while it is called today... So we need to uh, have frequency. When is today? Every day. <laughs> today is every day. 
So we need to exhort one another every day. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says encourage each other daily. Community is not a convenience to fit in, but a commitment to stick to. We need these relationships because sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. So we need, we need one another. We need to be speaking into one another's lives, holding one another accountable, loving one another, so that that unbelief will not creep into our hearts. We need one another. Lastly, verses 14 through 19, we need to partake fully of Christ. Look there in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So we need to share in Christ. We need to partner and befriend. We have become partakers of Christ. You know, when we, last week, we uh, partook of the Lord's Supper. That means to take it in. To be a part of it. To be engaged in it. To participate in this. We need to be participating in Christ. We have become partakers in Christ. How? How is that? It's by holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This is very similar to chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. When you look back up a little bit there, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So much of this is talking about the perseverance of how we need to persevere in our faith all the way through to the end. We need to be able to persevere in our faith. We need to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then verses 15 through 18. While it is said, today, these are several questions in this, in this part right here. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? That being God. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So how do we, how do we fully partake in Christ? How do we fully partake in Christ? Three things here is the way we do it. Now, it speaks negatively in the passage of Scripture, but I want to talk positively how it works. He asks the question. He says this, For who have heard, for who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So the first thing we need to do, if we want to fully partake in Christ, is not rebel. Now, sometimes rebellion is good. We need to rebel against the culture. We need to rebel against the things of the works of Satan. We need to rebel against those things. But we don't need to rebel against Christ, against God. That's what he's talking about. Those who rebelled were indeed those who came out of Egypt. They rebelled against God. They saw God. They saw God in his goodness. They saw God in his deliverance. They saw God in his care, in his love, and in his grace. But yet, they saw him in his wrath, too, and how he took care of their enemies. They saw all these things, but yet they rebelled against a God who defended them and loved them. Is that not us today? 
We rebel. We know what we should not do. The Scripture is very clear on those things. But we rebel because we are selfish, self-centered in a self-focused world today. And we do it day in and day out. And we say, I want to choose me over you. I want to choose me over Christ. And we become very self-centered people. And we rebel against God. And we choose ourselves over everything else. Now listen, I'm not telling you not to be someone who cares for themselves. We don't, need to, we don't need to be careless with our lives. We need to be careful with our lives. We need to be mindful of who we are. We need to take care of ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we do that at the detriment or, the, or, or putting our foot on someone else to step over them. We are to care for people like Christ cared for people. How do we fully partake in Christ? We don't rebel. We also don't maximize sin. Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Verse 17. Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? So the first thing we do is we don't rebel. Secondly, we minimize sin. We're going to sin, okay? Until our bodies lay in that grave and our, our body and our, our soul is separated from that and it goes on to be with the Lord to, uh, we are going to sin. But we got to minimize that. We minimize that by being in His Word, by having a faithful prayer life, by serving. The more you serve, the less time you have to pick out the problems with everybody else. If you want to sit there and complain and pick out problems with everybody else, it's probably because you ain't doing much. Because if your heart and your mind is more focused on others, you quit worrying about yourself. Like I said again, it's not about not taking care of yourself, but it's about being mindful and having a, 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 an outwardly focused heart and mind and seeing that other people need Christ. If we already have Him, if we have already been redeemed by Him and regenerated by Him, we need to be seeing other people as those who need Him as well. We minimize that sin. We minimize that sin and then we... Do what we obey. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who do not obey? You wonder why we're not restful? We wonder why there's no peace in this world today? Because no, so little obedience to the Lord. Even within the church house, all the way to the White House, there's very little obedience to the Lord. And we wonder why there's no rest. People are looking for the next thing to be angry and upset about. Why is that? Because there's no rest. Because there's no obedience. There's little to no obedience. Listen, we, we've got to be people who are obedient to the Word of God. We've got to see people's needs and, and, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And sometimes it takes meeting a physical need so that it opens the door to the spiritual need. Christ did that quite often. You know, we see things and you know, we, people that, that we minister to, that we have ministered to on a regular basis, and, and we see them making poor choices, sinful choices that get them in trouble. Saw that this week with an individual that we've served. And it just breaks my heart because, I mean, I've spoke to this guy 
I mean, I've, I've missed a couple of months in, in, in serving in food, food closet. But, I mean, it just breaks my heart to see, see things like that. But if we minister, if we'll minister to people, we'll have less time to complain. We'll, we'll, our minds, if we'll just obey God, minimize our sin, and not rebel, we will be much better partakers of Christ. And in verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Today, you may be thinking, I don't got any peace. Well, a big part of that might be because you have unbelief. Maybe today you've never confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, how do you get past this lack of peace in your life? Well, the Scripture tells us, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised His Son from the dead, you shall be saved. There goes your unbelief. Here comes your rest in Christ. Does that mean that everything's going to be easy and a cakewalk from there on out? Matter of fact, honestly, most things are probably more difficult because now you're going against the way of the world. But you will have a rest that you can return to and you can confidently trust in that you can go back to and you can get that peace and that rest that only comes through Jesus Christ. You've got to fight that creeping unbelief. Today, if you don't know Christ, your Lord and Savior, I pray you'll get, that, you'll get that fixed in your life today. You'll come to this conclusion that you are a sinner apart from Christ and you need saving. And the only person that can save you is not you. It's not your mom, your daddy. It's not their statement of salvation. It's only by the fact that you yourself repent and believe the good news. That you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. And you shall be saved. That's how it comes. 